what's up, what's up? If anybody can find a seat, we will uh, we'll get started. Man, again, welcome. So glad to uh, so glad to see you guys, man. I'm for real. Like, it's been a crazy week. Okay, I don't know if the same can be said uh, for you. Of course, I can imagine that it that it can. Everybody's got things going on. Um, but for a while now, we have been working our way through uh, the Gospel of Mark. I say for a while. I should say for like six months. Like we've been in the Gospel of Mark, and so. Um, we're continuing our way through this morning. We find ourselves in Mark chapter 8. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and, and feel free to, to, to turn to or to turn on Mark chapter 8, right? Um, there are some Bibles at the front. If you don't have one and you would like one, man, those are our gift to you. Feel free. I give you permission to get up now and to go, uh, to go grab one. Um, but we find ourselves in an interesting place in Mark, uh, in Mark chapter 8. I, I think that it's... it's encouraging um, and challenging for our hearts to find ourselves this morning in Mark chapter 8, given the events that we see kind of going on um, in the region around us. If you've been on Twitter or you've been on Facebook or Instagram or if you're really old school and you still watch the news or read the newspaper, right, then you've seen that it's just been really evil, crazy, hectic, horrific things going on around us, right? And in Virginia, specifically over the course of, uh, over the, course of the last 48, uh, 48 hours or so. And so um, encouraging, challenging, good to find ourselves this morning in Mark chapter 8. So allow me to, for just a moment, catch us up on what we've seen over the past couple of weeks. I'm not going to go all the way back to the beginning because, um, man, that's a lot, right? That's a lot going on. But we're going to look back specifically at what we saw last week as we concluded our time in Mark chapter 7. I told you guys a couple of weeks ago, we spent five weeks in Mark chapter 6, and then we spent two weeks in Mark chapter Mark chapter 7. And so I think this will be helpful to go back and to review just a little bit where we were uh, last, last week. Last week, when we met, uh, we met from the text in the passage two people with very challenging circumstances in their lives. We, we met a woman who had a daughter who was being oppressed by an evil spirit. And we covered a lot last week. And so we didn't actually, I don't think, get the time that I would have liked for us to have to really sit in and feel the weight of what this particular woman is dealing with as she approaches Jesus at the tail end of Mark chapter 7. Okay, just imagine for a moment. Okay, we, we're talking about the evil that we see in the world around us. Here we are talking about an, an actual evil agent existing within the body, the being of this little girl. And her mother is brought to this position of desperation. Right? We look at the world around us and there are times where we actually literally throw our hands in the air and we go, man, I don't know what to do with this. Okay? Imagine when that evil finds itself in your home right? Or like within your, within your family, right there. The actual evil dwelling within your daughter. And that's tragic. And it's, and it's heartbreaking. And as we came into this portion of Mark chapter 7 last week, we see this woman who has come to the end of her rope as it relates to this, this, 
circumstance, the situation with her daughter, approach Jesus with humility and with boldness and with faith, believing that Jesus can do something truly, truly remarkable. And so we meet this this woman, and then in the last part of the passage, we meet a deaf man, a deaf man with a speech impediment. One from Tyre and the other from Sidon, both from very pagan Gentile cities, both who help us to see God's heart for the nations, to see God's heart for people. Because we reflect on our time uh, at the tail end of Mark chapter 6 and even the first half of Mark chapter 7, we see Jesus dealing with and addressing and conversating with and correcting primarily the religious leaders, scribes and Pharisees. Right? And we, we observed through our time there in the first half of Mark chapter 7 the hardness of their heart, seeking to trap Jesus, seeking to discredit Jesus. And then we see Jesus begin to, begin to move into this Gentile region, this pagan area, and we see desperation, we see humility, we see acceptance, we see confession. We see amazing things from these two people that help us to better understand God's heart for the nations, God's pursuit of a pagan people, God's pursuit of a Gentile people, a God, God's pursuit of a people considered by many to be outside of the fold, to be unsavable, to be unredeemable, right? And this is exactly what we see Jesus do as we, as we began last week, the tail end of, of chapter 7. We see one who approaches Jesus with a bold faith. The other would prove to be the physical beneficiary of the faith of his friends, being physically made well as they bring him to Jesus and beg him to just touch him that he might be healed, both receiving grace and mercy from Jesus. In one instance, a daughter is made well. In the other instance, the eyes of the blind are are opened. We closed our time last week focusing on our response to the mercy of God. Our response, having seen God's heart for the nations, having seen his pursuit of a, of a pagan people, how he cares for them, which we're going we're gonna to move into that territory again this morning, how he pursues them, how he provides for them, And we didn't have to think very hard about how we ought to respond to what we see playing itself out here in this particular portion of Mark's gospel. We didn't have to make it up. It's right there in Mark chapter 7. We concluded our time last week by looking at verses 36 and 37. They've been healed, right? Jesus is dealing with, addressing this this man who was a a, a deaf man with with a speech impediment and his friends. And it says in verse 36 that Jesus charges them to tell no one. Right? Imagine that. Right? You've just seen like the most remarkable, unexplainable thing that you've ever seen before. And now Jesus is saying, hey, don't go and tell Anyone, But the more he charged them, and we can totally get this, the more zealously they proclaimed it. Verse 37, and they were astonished beyond measure, saying, and is this not a precursor to what we see? What we know is ultimately to happen as Christ gives his life upon the cross so that you and I might be physically 
one day ultimately made well and that we might be spiritually now in this life and on into the next resting in the sovereign authority of God, that we might enjoy fellowship with him. Jesus, he does all things well. That's how they, that's what they say, man. He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. And he does so in accordance with the writings of the prophet Isaiah. We stepped back and we said, as Jesus works his way through this region, it appears as though he is at times experiencing interruption, right? From his movements, from his going from one place to another. He's encountering broken people who are coming and tossing themselves at the feet of Jesus and begging him to do something miraculous, to do something amazing. But then we step back and we go, no, no, wait. If we look at what is actually happening here, as the Messiah has come and he's showing us what the kingdom of God established looks like, right? It's not that he is being interrupted, but it's in fact that he's pointing us towards what is ultimately being accomplished one day, right? As the, the consequences of sin, Genesis chapter 3, are undone in this moment, Right? In this, in this small little picture, as the oppressed are set free, right? And as the, the deaf are made to hear and speak well, to the point that there is this acknowledgement that Jesus does all things well. We see a small picture here of what is to happen one day, ultimately on a cosmic level. And so if you don't know the end of the story, here it is. Right? This is what Jesus does. He, he defeats sin. Right? He, he undoes its consequences and he brings here the kingdom of God ruling and reigning, existing. Right, We see a picture of it, but man, we know that there is so much, there's so much more to the story. As we come to Mark 8, we're reminded of the feeding of the 5,000 in Mark chapter 6. Okay, And so if you've been with us for a while, you were with us maybe perhaps during Mark chapter 6, or you're at all familiar with the ministry of Jesus you know, as we come to Mark chapter 8, and maybe you have a heading in your Bible that says something like this. Jesus feeds the 4,000. You're going, wait a second. Is this, we've seen this, something like this happen before. Is this a retelling? Or are we seeing something like this actually happen again new? Some would say that it's a retelling of what we see in Mark chapter 6. I'm here to tell you that it's not. Okay, it's not a retelling, but in fact, uh, this is a, a new feeding. There are a handful of differences that we can see between these two events. I'm going to point out just a few of them for you. Why? Well, because it helps us understand the progression of the kingdom of God. It helps us to understand right, how the story is now much bigger than anyone ever could have imagined. We get a peek of it. Right? As, as, as Jesus engages these Gentile pagan areas, but now as he feeds the masses, let's understand the distinctions between what we see in Mark 6 and what we see here in Mark 8. In Mark 6, Jesus feeds uh, what we could, we could assume, we could guess to be between 15 and 20,000 people, including women and children. Here in Mark 8, Jesus feeds 4,000 people. In Mark chapter 6, the people had been with Jesus for one day. In Mark chapter 8, the people had been with Jesus for three days. In Mark chapter 6, the crowd is made up mostly of Jews. In Mark chapter 8, 
As we see from Mark 7, Jesus is in a Gentile region of the Decapolis, a mostly Gentile region. And so whereas we see Jesus dealing with and working with and displaying his power amongst the Jewish people in Mark chapter 6, last week we talked about God's heart for the nations and we come to Mark 8 and we go, man, this is, a, this is huge. This is big. Like this, is, this is massive what Jesus is doing here. We're seeing the scope of the kingdom of God broaden as now the Gentile pagans are brought into the story yet again. What are we going to see this morning as we read through this, this first portion, maybe the first, I think, 13 verses of Mark 8? Here's our big idea. Here's what we want to begin grasping as we approach this passage this morning. Out of a genuine compassion and care, Jesus satisfies and sustains the spiritually hungry. Okay, out of genuine compassion and care, Jesus satisfies and sustains the spiritually hungry. And so if you come here this morning and you are weak and weary, right? If you feel beaten up, right, and and broken down, then we're here to say that the hope that our hearts are most in need of is found in Christ. And in this affirmation of his character, what he has come to accomplish, and what we see him working out as he continues on ministry over the course of the next the next few chapters as we finish up the gospel of Mark. Three things that we're gonna see as we work through this passage. First, the care of Christ. They all have to do with Jesus. Okay? The care of Christ in verses 1 through 3. We see the provision of Christ in verses 4 through 7. And then finally. We see the sufficiency of Christ in verses 8 through 10. We see the satisfaction that Christ brings to a people, the care of Christ, the provision of Christ, and the sufficiency of Christ. And so let's go together to Mark chapter 8. The stage is set. The table is set. Let's approach our passage now. This is indeed, man, the word of the Lord, beginning in verse eight, or chapter 8, verse 1. In those days... When again a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away, and his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place. And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. See how Jesus involves, yet again here, his people in his mission, on his mission, to meet the needs of this particular people. And they set them before the crowd, verse 7. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full, and there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away, verse 10. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmutha. Hey, let's pray together. 
Father, thank you this morning again just for your word. And we pray that as we approach it in humility this morning, that by the power of your spirit, that you would encourage our hearts and our minds, that you would open our eyes to see the truth that is communicated here to us from Mark chapter 8. We are grateful for your care, for your provision, and for your sufficiency. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen. So how do we begin this journey? Let's begin by observing the care of Christ in verses 1 through 3. And I want us to do so in light of this question. I want us to consider as we read through and unpack the feeding of the 5,000 by Jesus in Mark 8, I want us to ask this question. Right? I want us to ask internally in our hearts, how does Christ's concern for the 4,000 challenge you and I? How does it challenge our hearts? From verses 1 through 3 alone, we see a, a, a wonderful unpacking of the character of Jesus. A few very important points about Jesus. Number one, that Jesus is caring. Right? We see the care of Christ in verses 1 through 3. And so Jesus is caring. We'll point this out in just a moment. The second thing that we see is this, that Jesus doesn't forget. Okay, Jesus doesn't forget. Now that's encouraging, and we're going to talk about why as we continue working through this, this passage. Number three, he is considerate. And co- okay, so Jesus is caring, right? He, he remembers, and he is Consider it. Let's look at how we see this from the first three verses. It says, Mark writes, in those days when again a great crowd had gathered. And so what do we know about the people as they're following Jesus? Man, crowds of people, masses of people are finding themselves around Jesus. They're gravitating towards Jesus. Again, there's this massive crowd that's gathered around Jesus. A great crowd gathered and they had nothing to eat. And so what does Jesus do? Do Well, he, he called his disciples to him and he said to them, I have compassion. I have compassion. And so if you're here this morning and you find yourself questioning the character of God or the heart of Christ, know based on what we see from verses 1 and 2 and 3 of Mark chapter 8 that Jesus is first compassionate. Right? That he is indeed Caring. He's caring for the crowd because they had been with him now three days and they have nothing to eat. And so not only is Jesus caring, but what? Well, he remembers, right? We, we serve a remembering Jesus. That's really good news, right? So if you're here again, you're confused about the character, the nature, the person of Jesus. Maybe you feel as though you're here, right? Resting in this place, in this particular season, and maybe it's difficult. Maybe it's challenging. And you go, man, has, has God forgotten his people? This is a question that they struggle, man, this is the struggle of the Bible, right? God's people questioning whether he truly remembers them, if he remembers his covenant, if he remembers his promise. Here we see Jesus remembering. We see Jesus remembering. He says in verse 3, And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. If you don't know what this is, right, or if you don't know what consideration looks like, here it is. This is what consideration looks like. Jesus shows care. He shows that he remembers what's going on in the lives of these people. He's situationally aware, right? He gets what's going on in the room, the space 
around him. He's aware of the condition of the people. He's aware of their need. And then he is considerate. He's considerate. I love what William Barclay has to say about this particular portion of Mark chapter 8. Let me share this with you. This is incredible. Lean in. Get this stuff, man. This is really good. And it's about considerateness, okay? It's about considerateness. Considerateness, Barclay says, is a virtue which never forgets the details of life. Well, that's what we've seen Jesus doing already. Jesus looks at the crowd. They had been with him for three days, and he remembers that they had a long walk home. Right? Later on, he says, if I let these guys go now, like they've been with me three days, they haven't eaten, right? They're going to pass out. Some of them came a long way. They're, going to, they're not going to be able to make it. They're not going to be able to complete They're not going to be able to complete the journey. Listen to what he says here. He whose task it was to bring the splendor and the majesty of the truth and love of God to men might have had a mind above thinking what was going to happen to his congregation on their walk home. But Jesus was not like that. Confront Jesus with a lost soul or a tired body, and his first instinct is to what? Well, his first instinct is to help. We see in verses 1 through 3 how God desires that we would care for and relate with one another. Right? We're confronted through this passage with how we were created to live. And we can say this. Okay, We can say this about God and about how he desires that we would exist, about how we would live. That, that God's desire is that his creation, his people, would live with a love and care for one another that reflects his love, and his care for us. And so what is it all about? Is it about obedience for the sake of obedience? Is it about morality for the sake of morality? No, it all points to the glory and to the splendor of God. That's what it's all about, the instruction from God for his people as to how they are to live. Relating with him and relating with one another is so that his glory might be magnified. It's all about displaying God and his goodness. It's all about his character, his person, worship in his name to him. That's what it's all about. That his creation would display his heart. Only we're sinful, right? We're we're, we're sinful, we're fallen, we're broken, we're rebellious, and our natural tendency is not to help, right? That's our our natural tendency. How do we know that? How can we say that's true? Is that true? Like, do you buy that this morning, that our natural tendency, that our natural inclination is not to help? Well, let me give you an example of why I believe that we can say that this is indeed true. When we hear stories of radical forgiveness or generosity, how do we respond? We're amazed, right? Right? When you hear stories of radical generosity or radical forgiveness, reconciliation stories, we are more often than not amazed. We we hear of, of evil and hate in the world, right? Insert what we see going on in Virginia, like 
now? And we say things like, man, that is awful, right? If you watched the news yesterday and you saw the events that were taking place, like a bunch of white nationalist supremacy like people, like marching with tiki torches, I mean, that is, that is awful. Nobody looks at that, like, right? Nobody looks at that and goes, man, that is like, yes. No, no right-minded person looks at that and goes, man, yes, that's like, t- like, absolutely. That is what we are looking for, right? Religious or irreligious, just being a good citizen involves not marching on university campuses with tiki torches to protest people. Okay, that's just being a good citizen. Do you guys get this, right? Well, we say things like, man, I can't imagine that. Uh, we see cars driving into masses of people, and this is, we see it yesterday in Virginia, right? But we've, we, I mean, it's been all over the place. I think there was an instance in London a few weeks ago, and we just see hatred and wickedness. And we say, man, I can't believe that. That's crazy, right? That's, that's, that, is, that is crazy. But then, right, the, the tendency is, our tendency is to just go about our business, right? To, to, to go about our business, unless we are most immediately affected by the tragedy that we see taking place, right? If your friend or your mother or your father, your brother, was the one who got hit by a car yesterday, obviously you're not continuing to just go about your business, right? But for those of us who are, who are distant from what's going on in that particular region, right? Man, we are, our tendency is more to just kind of go on about our days. Here's what I'm here to say, okay? This is, what, this is the point, right? That that cannot be the heart of God's people, Right? From Christ, we see an authentic, sorrowful, considerate care for the needs of people. And so when we see things like this evil in the world, or let's bring it a little closer to home, the evil within our own hearts, what ought be our response? Man, we ought to be kicking over water coolers. This is what righteous anger looks like. Okay, to where we look at events like that and we go, no, I'm I'm not content in saying just that, man, that is awful. But like, how do we how do we how do we do something about this? How do we publicly address this? How do we call this exactly what it is that it's sinful? Right? And that there are tendencies perhaps in you this morning that lean that direction or this direction that maybe not be like drive a car into a crowded group of people crazy, but it's certainly in the ballpark to which our response must be, get this, repentance. Right? That is the response. That is the proper response of God's people failing to live with this care, this consideration, this remembrance, not only of what Christ has done for us, which totally transforms this whole thing, right? We can talk about this and we can address this as we do because of the gospel. It enables us to do so. But now, in light of that, to live, to live differently. Right, to, to truly address these things. In other places, we will undoubtedly in our lives have opportunities to speak out against evil. But I think that we must begin by addressing the blatant evil actions that we see in the world around us 
and then addressing the evil that exists within our own heart, asking Christ to transform us, right? To, to, to transform us, to give us new hearts. We see from Christ that a genuine care for people results in some type of movement that seeks to bring about good. We see that through the care and consideration of Jesus, a, a, a real need for gospel transformation within our own hearts. Think about what we see as the hearts of humanity are transformed by the power of the gospel. We see utopian society begin to exist and to begin to flourish. We see sin being killed and we see righteousness lifted up. If you don't believe me, go to the book of Acts. Right? Go to the book of Acts. Anybody familiar with the book of Acts? Right? Raise your hand. Familiar book of Acts? Have I read it before? Let's get some, uh, some participation here, some involvement, right? You go to the book of Acts and you see the Spirit of God come. And as the Spirit of God comes, he enables and empowers his people to begin living this type of life that reflects the same care that we see from Christ here in Mark chapter 8 in the lives of his people and in their communities in Acts chapter 2. Right? Selfless living, right? Meeting the needs of the people around them, desiring righteousness and then holiness and gospel advancement. This is what we see in Acts chapter 2. This is what we see like, what it looks like to live as God's people in community, right? And so, so it's, we're working that way. God's building this, right? He, he builds it, and He brings us to it in Acts chapter 2, but we see it ultimately displayed here in our context this morning, in Mark, chapter, in Mark chapter 8. Let's move on. So we see first the care of Christ. Now let's look at verses 4 through 7, where we see the provision of Christ. Within this passage, it's important to keep in mind that there is likely some time that has passed. Okay, we don't know exactly how much time has passed, but if we go through, I mean, you can literally read from Mark 6 to Mark 8 in a single sitting. Some of you have, right? When you do that, when we read it that way, the tendency is to go, man, are you kidding me? Like 17 seconds ago, Jesus like multiplied and fed another like 20,000 people. Here, why is there this confusion about whether or not he can feed 4,000 people? At which point we go, oh, wait, like my tendency is to forget those kind of things too, right? Like, man, God has proven himself so faithful in some really amazing ways in my past, right? Maybe my past personally or maybe historically God has proven himself faithful. And yet our tendency at times is to question whether God will continue to be faithful, right? And so let's be encouraged as we approach this passage, this portion of our passage, by the provision of Christ, remembering that likely some time has passed and we can relate with what we see from the disciples here. The second thing that we need to know is that the disciples are at least clearly grasping their limitations. Look at what we see in verse 4. And his disciples answered him in response to this like, hey, why don't we just feed these people? A question from Jesus. How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? You see, their inability to meet the needs of the people at this time in their current geographic location, this desolate place, is emphasized by Mark. This differs from Mark chapter 6. If you go back to Mark chapter 6, it's all about how are we 
financially going to provide for these people? How are we going to buy enough food to feed these people? That's the issue in Mark chapter 6. As we come to Mark chapter 8, it looks as though it's more of a guardrail against assumption, right? The the disciples are more saying, listen, let's not just assume that Jesus is going to do this. And so let's, let's approach it in this particular way. Maybe that's one way we consider what's going on what's going on here, paired with the fact that they are in the middle of nowhere, which I think is an important point. They are in a desolate place. How are we going to feed these people in such a desolate place? Let's continue on into verse 5. And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. Again, God's people engaged on mission. God's mission, right? We see that here very clearly. And they set them before the crowd, verse 7. And they had a, a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. We see Jesus again, as we saw in Mark chapter 6, blessing the loaves and the fish. Again, presumably, right, looking up towards heaven, displaying, as we saw last week, this communion that Jesus enjoys with the Father, this desire that Jesus has to fulfill the will of the Father. Jesus here expressing his reliance on the Father, thanking the God, thanking the Father for his provision. In this second exodus that reminds us of God's commitment to the rescue of slaves. Think back to what we see in the book of Exodus. As God's people have been enslaved in Egypt for like hundreds of years, this nation has developed, has been grown, has been brought up in the midst of difficulty and persecution, just as God said that it would, right, that this nation would be developed. And then he sets them free. And as he does so, he brings them into a desolate place, into the wilderness, and what does he do? He meets their need. How so? Well, it literally like rains bread, right? Manna. He meets their physical need. You see, regardless of of position or posture, it's important for us to realize that God is committed to the rescue of the enslaved, of the rebellious, of the Sinner. The gospel says that Jesus pursues us in desolation and in isolation. That is the message of the gospel, that we are in a desolate place, that we are isolated, that we are broken, that we have run away, that we have gone astray, and that we are dead. But Jesus pursues us into the desolate place, that he searches and calls for us. You see, the gospel says that God brings us home through Jesus, right? This is the message of the kingdom, right? This is the message of Jesus. And this is exactly what we see Paul saying in Ephesians chapter two. And so if you have your Bible, man, feel free to turn over to Ephesians chapter two. We're gonna take a field trip into Ephesians chapter two because this is awesome. How does Christ's pursuit of us transform not only our relationship with one another, which it certainly does, but also our relationship with God? How do we relate with God and how do we relate with one another? Well, listen to what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 
2, beginning in verse 11. Therefore, Paul says, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But look what we see in verse 13. Now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. He is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself, here it is, one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. That's what we see in Mark chapter 7 on into Mark chapter 8. That's what we see through Mark's gospel, the message of Christ, verse 18. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Christ pursues us into desolation in which we have run into, right? Like we, we have willingly, willfully run into the wilderness and Christ pursues after us. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. Man, but our fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, verse 21, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Not only does Christ pursue us into the desolate places, bring us back, call us, rescue us, redeem us, reconcile us. We're big fans of our words here, right? But he gives us his spirit that now resides within us that we might begin to live the type of life that he has called his people towards. For what purpose? Remember, it's all for his glory. Are you guys good? Are you with me? Awesome. Three things that we can learn about the provision of God. And these are not original to me, but they are sweet. His provision isn't always what we expect. We can trust in his provision, but here's the deal. It's not always what we expect. I'm sure that we could open the room up. We could open the floor. I'll walk up, walk up to the microphones, and we could speak of, of times and seasons in which God has provided, but it certainly wasn't what we expected him to, to do. His provision isn't always what we expect, but... He always provides more of himself. And that's the second thing, that he always provides more of himself. Listen to what John Piper has to say about this statement. Our greatest need is for more of God. 
Let that sink in. If I, if I were to ask you to, to make a list of your needs, your greatest needs as they currently exist, you could pull out a three-ring binder, right? You can make a list of needs, right? For some of you guys that are relatively new to campus and you've been here by yourself a week, you're going, I need food and money, right? Mom, send food and money, right? But, but here's the deal. When we look up at 30,000 feet, when we zoom up and we look down upon our greatest need, our greatest need is, in fact, for more of God. And this is something, listen, that he gladly gives us. Matthew 7, verses 9 through 11. Which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? Horrible dad, right? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? And so we ask ourselves, what is the deepest root of your joy? What is the deepest root of your joy? What God gives you or what God is to you? Those things are radically different. What is the deepest root of your joy? Is it what God gives you or is it what God is to you? That he is our Abba, Father. God graciously guides us into a greater realization that our ultimate need is for more of his word, more of his ways, more of him. And so what are our greatest needs collectively this morning? Here it is. More of his word, more of his ways, more of him. Collectively, individually, those are our greatest needs. So, so keep money on the list, right? Because you guys do need some of that and some ramen, but move them down a little bit, okay? And, and let's, let's begin to Let's begin to prioritize. Lastly, we see that his provision isn't always what we expect, that he always provides more of himself. But lastly, that God's ultimate provision has already been given in the gospel. Right? God's ultimate provision for you has already been provided. Christ has come. Right? He, has, he has lived out the letter of the law in perfect obedience in all the ways that you and I fail. Consider what we see in Mark 8 alone. Perfect care, perfect remembrance, perfect compassion, perfect consideration. Jesus lives out what you and I were called to live out and failed miserably to do. And he has done so for our sakes that as he takes our place upon the cross, he might, get this, this is big, absorb God's wrath through our rebellion so that we might receive his righteousness and therefore, as we see Jesus talk about in the book of Matthew, entrance into the party dressed in his righteous robe. You guys get that? Like that, that is the gospel, right? that we cannot rescue ourselves, that we cannot live in perfect obedience what God requires for us to, to be made right, to be brought into right relationship, but that Christ has done it. That Christ has done it. We have confidence in Christ's provision. Why? Well, here's the deal. We have confidence in Christ's provision because he is our provision. 
Right? We have confidence in the provision of Christ because Christ is our provision. He is our only claim to the throne. He is our only claim to right relationship with God. He is our only claim to entrance within the kingdom. And so we have an ultimate confidence in his provision because we understand that it is not what we do for ourselves, but it is what he has already done for us. The last thing that I want us to look at real quickly is the sufficiency of Christ. What do we see in verse 8? And sufficiency is not adequate, right? It doesn't adequately communicate what we see here as we close out our time, but it's the best word that we've got. In verse 8, It says, after Jesus had multiplied the bread, he had multiplied the fish, that all of those gathered before him, these Gentile pagans, had ate, and they were what? Satisfied. They were filled. And so let's say this. Let's individually, let's corporately affirm this statement that Christ is all-sufficient and satisfying. Christ is all-sufficient, and he is all-satisfying. Getting this truth, right, embracing this, grasping hold of this, remembering this, keeping this before us, transforms the way that we understand joy and perceive the world around us. Mark 8 speaks this over a people. Christ, the bread of life, satisfies God's wrath through his death, and he satisfies people through the resurrection, right? We, we see this. It's, this is not about bread, right? This isn't about bread. The, earlier this summer, we were giving away haritos to everybody who came, all the first-time guests. You guys came, and we hooked you guys up with a soda. For all you new first-time guests, sorry, catch one next week, right? Why? Well, it's not about the soda, right? It's not about that. Like, man, Take whatever we got. Like, yeah, you know, I want to need the table. Take one of the tables. Like, I don't care. It's not about that, right? It's not about the bread. Like, Christ is pointing here to the sufficiency of himself. His being the bread, right, that would be broken. That we're going to go to the table here in just a few minutes. That we're going to take of broken bread and juice. And we're going to remember what Mark chapter 8 is ultimately all about. Here the people are satisfied. This is incredible. The people are satisfied through the bread that has been blessed and broken. Right? And given. They're satisfied we see in verse 8. But here's the deal. God is satisfied. The Father is satisfied as the bread of life, the Son, is broken upon the cross so that we might be uh, brought back into right relationship with Him, right? So here we see this breaking of of this actual bread, this physical bread, right? But it's ultimately foreshadowing us to so much more, right? Christ's broken body. Right? Our hope of glory and the resurrection, our only boast. As Brendan Manning says in his book, The Ragamuffin Gospel, which we were just talking about last night, Mr. Stacy, Ms. Karen. He says this, that the gospel declares that no matter how dutiful or prayerful we are, we cannot save ourselves. But that what Jesus did was sufficient. Like, that's the message of the gospel. Like, that, that's, what it's all, that's what it's all about. This is what it's all about. This is what it's all, what it's all 
about. Christ is sufficient, both for salvation and satisfaction, because he is our satisfaction. Your needs are met by Christ, and your needs are met in Christ. And so let's step away and let's go, how do we respond to what we see here from Mark chapter 8? I think we can ask ourselves a series of questions. Right? Where are we looking for satisfaction? Where are we looking for satisfaction? Is it in the things of the world or is it ultimately in, in him? Is it in Christ? We see here from this passage, man, that Christ alone is capable of satisfying. Right? How do we respond to the gospel? How do we respond to this understanding of, of, of God's care for us through the sacrifice of Jesus? How does that transform our hearts, our hearts desperately in need of transformation so that we might respond appropriately? How do we respond? Man, we care for people. Right? We, we, we speak out against injustice. We stand strongly and boldly on the gospel, the hope of Christ, as it relates to issues such as uh, abortion and racism. Right? Why? Man, because, because we've been reconciled. Right? We've, been, we've been adopted. We were enemies, and Christ has brought us near. Our hearts are in need, as we sang earlier, of being tuned of being made new so that we might begin to care for people and boldly proclaim the care that God alone is able to provide. And so how do we respond? Here's how we respond. May we look to Christ. Or we look to Christ. We look to Christ. We, we go to Christ. We enjoy Christ. And then we know, we Rest assured in this, that the rest will take care of itself, okay? The rest will take care of itself. What are we to do, man? Look to Christ, go to Christ, enjoy Christ, see his provision, and trust. Trust in his sufficiency to save, to set free, to sustain, and to satisfy. That is what Christ does. That's the hope and the message of the gospel. So let us let us consider these things. Now let's consider the sin in our in our lives, the care of the Father, the sacrifice of the Son, redemption made available. And let's go to Christ.